0: Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to our webinar. I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance, and I'm delighted to moderate our discussion this afternoon. Our topic is, why is foreign exchange so far behind in technology and data? The more I think about it, the more I think it's the wrong question to ask. Given the level of engagement by FX traders in the cryptocurrency markets, one answer to the question is certainly that the FX industry is not behind on anything to do with technology and data. In fact, FX may even be ahead. And today, we're certainly going to touch on the impact of cryptocurrency trading on the FX markets. We're going to talk about uh, central bank digital currencies and peer-to-peer trading. Uh, We're going to look at how the buy side needs to change the way it approaches the FX markets. We're going to look at the plethora of benchmarks. And we're going to look at uh, the one area where FX does need... Uh, to invest in technology, and that is post-trade. That is in desperate need of modernization. To help us pick through those topics, I'm joined by four experts in FX. Claude Goulet is formerly Head of Institutional FX and Wealth Sales at HSBC. He's now CEO at Siege FX Limited, the fully automated and market-neutral foreign exchange peer-to-peer platform which nets trades at the independent and regulated New Change FX mid-rate benchmark. Alan Guild is a former global head of FX and uh, Commodities Execution Services at HSBC and COO of FX Options Trading at Goldman Sachs, now using his experience to help clients of Hilltop Walk Consulting adapt to technological and regulatory change. Mathieu Herbeau is a former global head of FX at both BNP Paribas Security Services and RBC Investor and Treasury Services now acting as an independent FX consultant. Jay Moore is a former head of currency management at both State Street and Brown Brothers Harriman who in 2019 founded FX Hedgepool a buy-side to buy-side trading platform that aims to reduce transaction costs for asset managers hedging currency risks. He is the CEO as well as the founder of FX Hedgepool. In addition to our panelists, we do of course also have you our audience. We want your questions, we want your comments. So do please send them and keep sending them throughout this webinar using the Q&A functionality at the bottom of the screen. Uh, We won't be saving them up to the end. We'll answer them as we go along. So you'll be, if you want to be, an integral part of this discussion right from the off. And I think I speak for all five of us when I say we're going to be very disappointed if we don't get uh, lots of interesting questions. I'm going to kick our discussion off, as we've got lots to talk about, with cryptocurrencies. And I say that because one of the striking uh, aspects of the cryptocurrency boom or bubble or whatever it is, is how many... FX traders, both current and XFX traders, seem to be involved in it. Now, of course, they must to some extent be following uh, the needs of the clients, but they seem also to have taken to trading Bitcoin and Ether as if it's just another currency or currency pair. Uh, But of course, um, it isn't, is it? Uh, So, um, Alan, perhaps I could I could come to you first um, to give us some thoughts on this question: Um, cryptocurrencies, if they're not currencies, what are they? Are they commodities, and why do? FX traders seem to find it such natural waters for them to swim in.
2: So look, I'm interested, obviously, in the views of the other panellists and, and, and our audience as well, Dominic, as we were saying. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with, uh, I guess, a view that a cryptocurrency is a commodity in the sense that it's a, it's a product. It's an asset that you, you buy, sell or invest in, as opposed to a currency, which is really something uh, that you use uh, for, for payment. Um, In terms of we look at cryptocurrencies today, yes, we all read the news articles that you can buy a pizza or you used to be able to buy an electric car uh, with a Bitcoin. But really, if we look at why people are using them, um, they're using them for for investment. In terms of why do people, why do I see people who I've worked with in in FX looking to be involved in, in cryptocurrencies I think it's, it's an interesting, it's an innovative market. And as I'm sure as we have the conversation today, we'll be talking about ways about some of the ideas, some of the, the technology could have a role in the FX market going forward. But probably more than anything, we're talking about traders um, who like a little bit of volatility, who like predicting markets and, and, and see an opportunity to test their hunch, test their gut and, and do something that they enjoy doing.
1: Thanks, Alan. Mathieu, you've heard Alan say that, that uh, this is not a currency, it's an, it's an investment, it's a, it's a commodity. Uh, it's also, I think, a, um, a, a hedging tool. Some of the people are investing in it, see so it as a hedge against inflation. Um, but you've also heard him say that uh, FX traders like the volatility. Um, what are your thoughts about the engagement of FX professionals in, in the cryptocurrency industry?
3: Well, first of all, I really share um, Alan's view of the... Uh, Nature of the cryptocurrency. I also view that more as a commodity than as a currency. Uh, to Alan's point, you, a currency you could normally use it to settle something, but you can't actually settle much at the moment with uh, cryptocurrencies. And um, uh, it's difficult to talk about volatility when we've been looking at what's happened over the last few days uh, losing 30% over a day, uh, making 30% up again the day after. It's uh, <laughs> It's difficult to compare that to the FX market, which is much more mature, much more stable. Um, I mean, you you need guts really to get involved in the currency, in the crypto market these days. Um, I personally would keep away from it um, or, you know, buy something, sleep over it for 10 years and wait to see what it's worth for your retirement. This is more the way I would approach it. Um, And I I would advise uh, friends or people asking for advice, um, if they need to get involved, well, you may, but you, you should invest something that you can lose with a smile, basically. So uh, I, I'm, I'm skeptical about uh, cryptocurrencies. I've got more um, uh, favor uh, or favorable views on uh, stable coins and CBDCs, but cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin or Ether, um, I understand the underlying technology which is behind it. I think uh, there are great promises in that market from the underlying technology more than from the currency system says.
1: Well, I'd like to come back to, to CBDCs in a minute. But before we do, um, Claude, one of the things which cryptocurrency has given rise to is, is tokenization. Um, tokenization of all sorts of things, physical assets, but also securities. But one of the use cases, which is starting to get traction now is that by tokenizing um, cash and collateral, uh, every bank on the planet who at the moment is keeping very large sums of of money and securities in these liquidity buffers in all the markets where they're active, by tokenizing that they can start to economize on those and in particular in this case economize on FX settlement and and margining costs. Do you think that tokenization can help to achieve savings of that sort of magnitude? We're talking billions of, of dollars across the industry here.
0: Yeah, well, I don't know about those exact numbers, but yeah, I think definitely it's, it's, um, it's a very expensive part of what happens in foreign exchange. And You mentioned post-trade, <laughs> but there's also a few things pre trades that are equally expensive. The, uh, the proof of assets, the, the, all these movements of collateral, which are uh, not calculated in real time, uh, it still requires movements of cash, there's settlement risk everywhere. It is a very, very expensive process to run. And let's not even talk about the messaging that goes along with all these things. So of course, if you could start to move into something which is closer to a distributed technology where you have a clearer golden source uh, where it's easier to actually measure in real time what your current exposure is and limit the amount of movements or cash that's required for you to transact or to pledge any of your tokenized assets for that purpose. Of course, you, you should quickly end up with something significantly cheaper, reduce your settlement times, and, and I think this is where the big savings are gonna come. So. A little bit like what my uh, fellow uh, panelists have said earlier, um, and let's put aside the question of what, whether it's a currency or not a currency whatever it is, but it's definitely something in that technology that can be reused uh, even within current arrangements.
2: Sure. Uh, I to, yeah, just to answer, I just want to pick up on something that, that Claude was just saying, because I think we can all agree that, that and, and it's going to be a theme as we talk for the next hour in terms of some of the data challenges, um, uh-huh. in in the fx market and you talked about the the problems with storing and transmission and sharing of data in terms of golden source i'm just interested Claude, how much you see that as about more modern technology and better solutions and how much you see decentralization as being a key because i'll probably come at it from the other angle that we need to improve and take lessons from from things like tokenization and what we see at crypt- cryptocurrencies, but we don't necessarily need to do things without a central authority.
0: No, no, I totally agree. And 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 the reason, and you know, going back to Mathieu's point, why is nobody using it to pay for anything? Is because by the time you finish paying, it's already worth something so different. And and yet again, in the currency. So so why bother in the first place, right? So no, I think you're absolutely right. But I think if you if you take aside the parts of the Crypto that scare everybody and, and the mining and all these things, but the actual ability that it gives you to be so much more efficient. How much would it cost you to process 10,000 tickets via a distributed ledger compared to doing the same thing via current arrangement? You know, if you, if you had to uh, not worry so much about the cost of your messaging, the cost about uh, moving that cash, the risk associated with moving that cash, the reconciliation of moving that cash, just for the sake of performing one transaction. And and that is what I think the market needs to learn from, is this ability to be so much more efficient about how you process the the transaction as opposed to trying to figure out whether this is the right medium. We we already have mediums called a currency, and I think it does what it's supposed to do. But do we have the best way to organize pre- and post-settlement operational uh, mechanism? No, we certainly don't. And I think that's where the market is going to learn to be more efficient and cheaper.
1: Claude, could I ask you about about one aspect of, what we see happening in the tokenized market and in the decentralized finance uh, market in particular, FX is an industry which is still, despite everything, very dominated by by banks. And what banks do you know, as banks or as, or as, or as FX prime brokers is take uh, credit and market risk onto their balance sheets. What we see happening in the DeFi markets is the development of a kind of collateralized non-bank credit taking place in which people are um, lending their tokens, uh, which can then be used to collateralize other other trades. Do you think the FX market, and you're talking here, you talked a few minutes ago about, about efficiency. Do you think the FX market has anything to learn from that process? Can we look forward to banks even being disintermediated in some way if the market is fully tokenized and on a, a blockchain?
0: Well, well everything is, is possible, but I think banks perform that role and they perform it very well. I think the difference with FX in any other market is that there's no decoupling between liquidity and credit. And I think here, we'll actually allow a lot more banks to perform what their key role should be, which is the provision of credit and and to be far more efficient about it. So so yes, this may lead to some amount of disintermediation, but what I think it should lead to instead, especially in the first instance, is actually bank being far more performant in in their credit provision. And, And as a matter of fact, all these technologies should enable banks who are not necessarily looking to compete as a market maker we could certainly look to uh, better monetize their balance sheet provision to to their underlying clients. So, so I don't think this is you know spelling the end of banks. I think quite quite the opposite. It's just probably helping a larger number of banks to perform their role far more efficiently than they were a few years ago.
1: Alan, do, I don't know if you have views on this. You know, trading out of digital wallets and uh, atomic settlements and so on. Um, might add to efficiency. Those are things we can learn. But do you think that that anything that's happening in the in the DeFi market, in particular, threatens the franchise of, of banks in the FX market?
2: No, I, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna violently agree with Claude. I think it, it, it's about new technology making it easier uh, for firms with balance sheet to deploy and track using that balance sheet. You, you markets rely on firms providing balance sheet in the forms of credit guarantees for, for transactions to happen. Exactly as Claude was was saying. And as technology progresses, firms can do that more efficiently. Um, and, and as Claude was saying, more banks um, may, may be in a position to get involved and and other large corporate institutions with big balance sheets might want to use their balance sheet in that way. I, I'm perhaps less convinced that the sort of big corporates and people talk about the tech <clears throat> firms obviously more than anyone else are about to start using their balance sheet to provide credit in financial markets is a very regulated activity it's not an easy thing to do um but absolutely i think technology makes that easier um and 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 it sort of expands potentially that credit capability going forward
1: i'm gonna i i'm am going to bring up cbdc's in a minute but um jay i don't know whether that 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 your coffee minutes ago indicated that you had some views to express on banks and, and credits yeah no, How yeah no
4: i i fully agree i mean what everybody said here it makes a lot of sense i mean i think we've been kind of in this sort of market structure for so long where liquidity and and credit provision have been tied together by necessity right and so that has so much limitation on both sides for the buy side and the sell side in that you know sell side firms in in, in, in many cases are not great at pricing everything, right? And so they're constrained um, to use their balance sheet for what they're good at and they're missing out and, and limited in what they're able to deploy their capital towards. Whereas you know, other banks are just the opposite. So you know, I think that there's this you know, change that we're seeing in the market through technology today where that decoupling of liquidity and credit are creating opportunities for banks to participate in volumes and trades that they weren't really able to before. Uh, And for other banks to see, to be a little bit more uh, optimal around how they're using their balance sheet rather than getting everything stuffed their way because they're good at pricing. Um, So it's, you know, there's this, there's this ability to be able to be a market maker without necessarily having to provide credit and separately being able to provide credit without having to be a market maker, I think really allows a lot more flexibility for the market as a whole.
1: Yeah. Thanks for that, and I'll come back to you later on how good I think the, how good you think the buy side is at uh, their side of that equation. How good are they at managing bank credit? But let's let's talk about central bank digital currencies. I think we've agreed that uh, whatever's happening in crypto and in DeFi doesn't immediately threaten the banks. But what about uh, what about central bank digital currencies? That could have a, a substantial impact on the spot market. Could have a substantial impact on the swap market. It could disrupt the role of banks um, as credit intermediaries simply because it makes cash collateral available much more readily. Um, it may may even, uh, to the point that Claude was talking about, about liquidity buffers, could even make correspondent banks kind of unnecessary if these RTGS systems are, are linked up and start to interoperate with each other. So what's the likely impact? Mathieu, I'm sure you've been thinking about this on behalf of your, your, your clients, um, who shall remain nameless? But you, you, what is the impact of, of CBDC is going to be on the way the FX market operates now, in your view?
3: Well, I think um, everything that you mentioned is is uh, quite meaningful, but it's probably something that to look forward to in a, in a in a in a I would say not so immediate future. I think the immediate future uh, focuses on um, on enhancing cross border payments, which don't necessarily have um, an FX impact. And there might be some exchanges of, of CBDCs between central banks uh, using accounts that they will hold with one another. Uh, but the FX component is not that close to the uh, uh, CBDC um, uh, uh, projects that we've we we, we we've seen happening. Um, you, you've run quite a few panels, Dominique, on that. And, uh, you know, we, we've got a lot of, uh, of projects in the retail space, with the behemoths uh, having uh, launched their own uh, uh, cryptocurrency, and now we start seeing some uh, wholesale projects, um, which once again have the intention of um, of um, securing and. Um, overcoming the uh, limitations of the uh, existing payments, infrastructure, and systems. Um, they, they want to promote the uh, financial inclusion, notably of the, uh, once again, uh, uh, retail clients, which are uh, unbanked or underbanked, um, and also boost competition. But I don't see um, CBDCs being part of the FX market in the near future, from my side. I think it's something that can happen in about two or three years, uh, but I, I see this as a as a... Fairly remote perspective, not just now.
1: But if we if we look forward two or three years, and just stick to the operational side of things, will we not have instant settlement? Move from T plus two to just doing it instantly? Uh, CBDC versus CBDC. That's history for Herstatt Risk, and if it's history for Herstatt Risk, that's history for maybe maybe for CLS as well. This could be very disruptive to the existing infrastructure. Could it not?
3: Yeah, I think you're right, and but we're already seeing instant payments. I, mean, I think the PIPS uh, project is uh, uh, makes it that you know if I wire money now within two seconds, it's on your account. And uh, uh, th- there has been already a lot of uh, of improvements from the uh, uh, I would say retail and small and medium corporates side. Uh, the, the, the big market, the wholesale, the uh, uh, real money, as we call it, is not quite there yet. But it's uh, uh, the, the settlement aspect is moving quite fast. Um, I think CLS has I wouldn't say competitors but uh, there are innovations and firms like uh, Baton Systems are doing a lot lot of interesting things and uh, I think they work quite closely as well with HSBC actually uh, on on the um, instant settlement system, um, knowing that they allow multiple vacations where CLS tends to be just one batch a day, so um, there is a lot that can be done through this um, and uh, it's Definitely a focus as well for the BIS, which is, which in, in its latest uh, triennial survey, uh, mentioned that the settlement risk was a, a key focus for, for, for the FX market and a key area for improvement.
1: Alan, um, CLS of course, is all about the real benefit of it is, is in the netting. Uh, is there a downside to CBDC versus CBDC instant settlement of, of cross-currency transactions? Do you lose the netting?
2: Well, I mean, you you could do or you could not, right? I mean, I think there are are a variety of different models uh, for central bank digital currencies. I think picking on what Claude was saying earlier, the the kind of central key piece for me is this idea of a shared ledger, shared golden source, um, which tells you effectively who's got what currency where. So effectively that could be held all within a central bank. It could be on a distributed, decentralized basis, or it could be in a a sort of multi-tier basis where, effectively, the central bank holds part of it and and commercial banks hold the individual accounts. If if we look at that kind of single-tier model, which I think is kind of the the base case, which a lot of the discussion around central bank digital currencies kind of starts with, then yes, absolutely. If if the four of us as panellists, um, all owed this sort of I owed Matteo, Matteo owed Jay, J owed Claude, and Claude owed me a uh, thousand digital dollars. Then we could all settle instantly. Um, but who's going to pay first? Um, and and actually, what what the multi-tier system in terms of what 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 the kind of the central bank to commercial bank to retail customer model does today in existing digital money is provides a netting capability through the rtgs that solves those kind of problems dominic exactly as as you were saying now those problems can be solved in similar ways with central bank digital currencies they can be solved in different ways and to to answer your question about cls i'm going to give it i guess a slightly cliched answer in the sense that cls is an incumbent here for atomic settlement of two currencies at the same time and associated netting uh, capability. Any innovation in any market is both a threat and an opportunity to the incumbent. Um, and I, I don't think you can really predict um, where it will go. I, I kind of agree with what Matthew was saying in terms of there are other people who are probably try and come along and eat, eat CLS's lunch. but. That, that kind of relationship with central banks and having the central bank bank accounts in each of the CLS currencies. Um, there's certainly reasons why even in a central bank digital currency world, CLS could potentially still be best place to, to offer that service. I think the reality is we don't know the answer at this point.
1: Mathieu, just as a nice segue, in fact, I'm talking about peer-to-peer trading, which is a large part of what we want to discuss today. And I'm sure that uh, Jay and Claude will want to come in on that in particular. but. There's a very narrow question. Could um, CBDCs, by making atomic settlement possible um, and facilitating buy-side, direct buy-side involvement, uh, could that make peer-to-peer trading more viable, more attractive? Could CBDCs help accelerate a move towards peer-to-peer
3: trading? Uh, Well, Yes, fundamentally, but I think the, the experts for peer to peer here are, are Claude and Jay. Um, fr- frankly, I think once again, CBDC's objective is to is to um, facilitate um, cross border will facilitate cross border payments. Um, the whole um, basis of of, um, of cryptocurrencies is there any way to do peer to peer. So. Um, And as I mentioned, my view is that there won't be any FX CBDC. Well, um, FX linked to CBDC is a perspective which is quite remote. So, in the meantime, and uh, given the fact that uh, the the institutional market is not either uh, very involved in in CBDCs for the moment, Uh, leaves a nice space to uh, Claude and uh, Jay's venture to uh, offer uh, competitive services. And uh, we know that uh, they also offer the uh, execution at at, at a benchmark at midpoint. So the the interest is um, covered by their ventures as far as I see for the moment. I don't see central banks and, and CBDCs covering that space yet, just yet.
1: Okay, um, Jay, um, Claude, start with you, Jay. Take up Mathieu's challenge here to explain um, the case for, if you like, for, for peer-to-peer trading. It is easily portrayed as a, as a form of way of disintermediating banks. Um, it's, people talk about it a lot as, as, uh, as a cost saving. Um, people talk a lot about the, the, the netting benefits before you, you go to market. So tell us, what's um are banks right to see this as a as a disintermediating threat? Um, and are our buy side clients in particular thinking about this in the right way if they're thinking about it as cost savings?
4: Yeah, I think all, all of that is really relevant. And 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 so to start with the banks, I mean, we, we assumed when we started Hedgepool and Claude, I'm sure you felt the same way with Siege that you know we were going to be perceived as threats, right? And and that wasn't necessarily our, our goal, was not to disintermediate banks, but to provide the buy side with alternative liquidity knowing that there are natural offsets in the market amongst you know each other um, you know again going back to what I was saying earlier I mean the market structure has prevented those two sides from seeing each other so you know the, and, and the reason for that is because you can only trade with those who you have credit with. so I think what we're seeing um, based on you know the first 25 minutes of this conversation as well as just the, the direction of travel with technology, is that, that that sort of link or that dependency between liquidity and credit is, sort of, is starting to break down. Uh, people are coming up with solutions, whether that's within the existing sort of framework of ISDAs and bilateral trading arrangements or a digital ledger type of solution. Uh, I think that's going to continue to evolve. And I think at the end of the day, what banks are recognizing is that this is an opportunity. To actually, you know, monetize their balance sheet in ways that they couldn't before. Uh, a, a regional bank specialized in a single currency that might be, you know, uh, 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 you know, a small percentage of the overall value of the market is not seeing the rest of the market because they're just not strong in euro dollar or dollar yen, or sterling. Um, so, you know, there's there's it's opening up opportunities there, and for other banks who are strong in pricing, it's it allows them to distribute that pricing without necessarily. Um, consuming all the possible balance sheet that they have available as, 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 a, as a bank. So I think there's definitely um, a, a sort of a, a view from the buy, from the sell side that's changing and understanding that this is a structural benefit to them, not necessarily a, an eat your lunch story um, to use um, you know some of the phrases from earlier, Alan. Um, so you know that's the sell side perspective. I think the buy side is kind of thinking about this perhaps, a little bit incorrectly um, in that uh, it's not just a savings story. It may be a savings for some, right? Trading with peers can cut out additional layers of cost. Uh, And that is absolutely true, right? There are based on all of these sort of uh, legacy systems and technology and and sort of just the way things have been done. There's layers of cost built into the trade workflows that don't necessarily, um, that aren't required. So if you can match off your risk with somebody with a natural offset, then clearly the market risk element, the risk transfer element of that goes away. The technology for communicating is is evolving, right? So it used to just be, um, you know, the legacy technologies available for allocations. People are now looking at different ways to do that. And maybe digital ledger is part of that, the golden source for allocations, So that there's not all these files transferring back and forth over legacy systems. So all of these things go back to cost savings, but one of the things that has really sort of um, been occupying my mind uh, a lot lately is around pre-hedging, and and the the you know the global codes uh, focus on what to do about this pre-hedging conversation and whether or not they're the ones who should do something about it. Uh, the problem with pre-hedging, or you know, it used to be called front-running. Pre-hedging is a risk management tool that banks need to do and you can't blame them, right? If, if they're asked to be able to price something at 11 o'clock this morning at a benchmark rate, well, you can't just ask them not to hedge that or, or, or manage that risk. So, you know, it, this is sort of a necessary problem that the sell side faces from a um, sort of a conduct risk perspective, right? How do I how do I react to this trade without putting myself in a, in a bad position while giving my client what they need? Um, and at the other side of the, the equation is, and how do I do this without moving the market, right? How do, I, how do I avoid market impact? So I'm sure, Claude, this is part of your daily conversations, you know, with your product development team yeah. and with your clients. It's, it's, it's a matter of, look, we're avoiding market risk, you know, and, and market impact altogether by naturally offsetting. And that is a really big part of the cost that's un, typically unmeasured. Um, and so it sort of goes overlooked, and we hear conversations with lots of clients, and Claude, I'm sure you hear the same, that, oh, we already traded mid. Well, yeah, but how? You know, what, at what cost are you really trading at mid? Um, and, and what is the impact to not only your funds, but all of your peers in trading at mid by giving the banks that order in advance? So, you know, this is, I think, the bigger part of the peer-to-peer story is how to eliminate market risk. Um, so, I don't know, Claude, I, I'm sure you have similar conversations around that.
1: No, so no, I, th- I think you have Claude, just before you, yeah. before you read, can I ask you very quickly, Jay, to, to pick up on one thing you've said more than once this afternoon about how the link between credit and liquidity is, is breaking down. Do you mean that peer-to-peer networks are bringing additional liquidity to the market or is it just
4: redistributing it within the market? Uh, I, I think...
1: Not a long answer, but just a...
4: Yeah, the way I look at it is that the the liquidity is from the buy side, right? The buy side is the you know the source of liquidity. Uh, mm-hmm. Right now, it's just routing through too many channels to get to the other side of that trade, uh, and and peer to peer just sort of eliminates the middle okay. from a from a pricing perspective and liquidity perspective. Okay.
1: Okay. Sorry, Claude. Um, g- give us your thoughts on on, on what peer to peer is all about. You know, cost saving, netting, etc. Getting a off a lot of, a, a
0: lot of good on. stuff has already been said, but um, just uh, maybe I suggest we just take a step back, right? And we look what's really happened in the last five to ten years. Uh, and there's been um, a lot of constraint on banks, and and capital is more expensive than it used to be, and there's probably less appetite to actually warehouse risk the way we were used to. And in parallel with that, we've seen actually boom in technology much easier access to electronic execution, the raise the of the algo in the FX space, so on and so forth. So, so reality is, and yes, uh, to, to Jay's point, more of the liquidity is coming from the buy side than it used to be. And uh, these people have got large sizes to do, and they can still do risk transfer, and bank will still be there to help them to do that, and that's fantastic. But when they actually start to realize that for some of the execution, the risk is squarely back with them, Of course, they have to look at how much market impact they're creating when they execute. And the thing about people said they trade at mid, well, how long for? You can trade the next mid because of course the mid has moved in between, right? So that's kind of very obvious. So the whole thing is about market impact. So if you're gonna wear that market impact, you need to uh, do all you can to limit the amount of market impact that you're gonna create. Uh, and, And if you believe that the bank will do a better job than you do, you do a risk transfer. Uh, or, or if you believe that they can help you to do this by using a bank algo, then that's what you use. Um, so the question is not about whether peer-to-peer is there to eat bank's lunch. Uh, you know, bank already offer algo. So you can say that they're eating their own lunch or letting somebody else eat their own lunch. So that's not the point here. The point is everybody's looking for cheaper, more efficient ways to minimize market impact and to make the whole process cheaper. So... And, and that's, that, is, that is true what Jay said around what clients should look into when they're uh, considering peer-to-peer. Yes, there's the fact that you potentially trade at mid, that's great. More importantly, you can remove your market impact or reduce it as much as you can. And equally, you should look into, are you going to be reducing your overall cost of processing a ticket? So an example of that today is internal netting. So clients trade against their own fund through a bank. And then they push that bank to book absolutely everything and use a huge amount of balance sheet. Why? What is the relation between the amount of tickets that's been booked compared to the amount of risk transfer? There's no comparison between the two. So you're forcing a bank to use a huge amount of balance sheet for a very, very small amount of risk transfer. Is that attractive to a bank? Of course it's not. So why don't you find everything that's available to you to reduce these costs? Peer-to-peer is a perfect example of that. So it's not creating new liquidity. It's helping to make liquidity work for you. So if you're deciding to sit on an order today because it's large, you don't want to go to market, what happens to your, the rest of your order in the meantime? It does absolutely nothing. It's not being worked. But if you are in a position to place it in a market-neutral peer-to-peer environment and limiting the information that's going to go away from you, then clearly you can start to actually monetize the time that you're going to wait to execute your order. And I think that is what's so attractive about peer-to-peer today. And the reality is uh, it's already worked in other asset classes. One of the reasons why it's taken so long with foreign exchange is going back to the same point. Everything was always coupled between liquidity provision and credit. And as technology is now helping us to decouple these two items, there'll be more and more peer-to-peer activity going through. That's just a natural evolution. And it's not against bank. As a matter of fact, we're partnering with banks. Both both Jay and I are spending as much of our time building things with bank uh, and and offering new services. And banks are, are very willing partners because they also see that this has value to them.
1: Thanks, Now yeah. We've had a, a, a question um, from Jamie Wilson, which is relevant to this, because if you are trying to measure your impact, you've got to measure it somehow. Uh, and there are, you know, you yourself, Claude are operating with, with the new change effects uh, mid-rate benchmark. Jamie Walton's question, and I can see where this question comes from, where it's going in a way, is, is this. Is there an opportunity for alternative benchmarks to improve the execution in particular with regard to pre-hedging and market impact, now you're not allowed to answer that, Claude, because I you know what your answer is. But perhaps <laughs> Alan, um, maybe you could give us a, a semi-independent view of, of, of that answer to that question.
2: Yeah, look, I mean, I think it comes back to to what Jay was talking about a few moments ago, and look, I think we've got a we've got a draw a st- distinction between uh pre-hedging and 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 historical misconduct, whether we want to call it front running or, or or anything else. I don't think anyone um involved in this webinar has is making any suggestion that right now banks are doing anything other than appropriately managing risk that that's passed to them. And and I think both Claude and Jay made the very good point in terms of you've got a choice. Um, and 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 when we talk about why has peer-to-peer been slow to take off um in fx i think we also have to acknowledge and i think they, i think we all have done but to emphasize again banks have done a, a good job i mean there was the the new change involved in that research piece and that question number, and i don't recognize that number necessarily but it's it's in the public domain of what 267 dollars uh, per million that that's less than a quarter of one percent to transfer from one asset to another asset and we can all talk about as having worked in this market, as there are potentially more efficient ways of doing it. But but compared to transferring one asset to any other asset, any other uh, in, in any other realm, it's it, it's really not very much um, at all. Um, I think to to come back sort of off that to to to, to Jamie's question. That I think the the guys are absolutely right that you've got to look at the total cost of execution and so that that is the the all-in price including all of the execution costs that you've paid against what would have been the price if your transaction hadn't gone through and so you've absolutely got to think about the market impact uh, of that and, and potentially the market impact of um hedging activity and i think we all know on the panel and many of the the participants today will know that Jamie's involved in an initiative to try and capture that in terms of generating benchmark. Dominic, you alluded to that as you introduced the question. And look, I think there's some interesting research that, that Jamie and his, his team have done. The, the, the reality is where you have a dispersed OTC market um, with innovation, like the platforms that Jay and Florida produce, it is very difficult to say authoritatively what a mid price would have been and what wouldn't have been um, and choice around how you analyze it and, and different benchmarks and different ways
4: of measuring it have got to be welcome in my view.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: I think if I, if I could just jump in there too, I, th- I think it, it depends very much as well on the objective of the trade too, um, right? A, a lot of the WM based executions are executed at WM not because um they, they, they like WM it, it per se. It, it may just be that that's what their benchmark is, right? They're index trackers with performance uh, measurements around that benchmark. So whether that's a good price or a bad price is kind of irrelevant to their performance because their job is to track it with precision. So you know, that is one thing that I think is until that benchmark, Is sort of replaced with something else, then they'll start tracking a different benchmark. But that will be probably remain for a long time. But I think that there's also a very large set of other types of trades that are more alpha generating trades, or you know trades where um, you know that are linked to a transaction, an underlying transaction or security, um, where uh, you know alternative benchmarks. I think have a lot of room to grow. Jay, we we can end up down a rabbit hole here that I'm sure Dominic doesn't want us to go.
2: But I, I think I think we've got to we've got to consider the asset owner in here. And I, and I, much as so I agree with you in terms of index tracking being done at WMR, but to say that if it's WMR, that's great, kind of ignores the impact on the asset owner of an index translating from one currency to another currency at a mm-hmm. price that may have reflected the FX market at 4 p.m. on a particular day, but at, at no other point based on supply and demand imbalances targeting that particular price. So I, so I think there is that broader question. Um, hundred think- percent.
4: Yeah, no, I, I'm not debating, um, and I, I think that's a much bigger discussion now <laughs> around whether or not that's the right benchmark, but the fact is it is. Uh, yeah. and, and and index trackers by by name are tracking the index. So until their mandates change, that will remain as their as their benchmark.
1: Is it, is it the right benchmark is a, is a good question. Alan brought up there the, the new change Lumint study, uh, which looked at asset managers hedging their portfolio risk and the, and the share class currency risk in, in funds they manage and came out with this number of 267 US dollars per million. Now, that doesn't sound like much, as, as you pointed out, Alan, but collectively across the industry, the same report says that's five billion dollars a year, and that's five billion dollars which the buy side are not collecting as a result of, of these transaction costs. Now, I seem to have been hearing about, you know, measuring impact and transaction cost analysis in FX for at least 30 years now. And uh, now we have a proliferation of, of benchmarks. The, the point you just raised a minute ago, Jay, you know, is that the right benchmark? There are a lot of benchmarks out there. Um, so I'm wondering what, you know, ha- have we made actually made any progress here? Maybe. Maybe Jamie Walton can can chip in here because I think he's asking a very valid question. um, That if we are trying to measure our our impact and our costs, do we yet have the right tools to do it? And if we don't, why not? Is it because we're not collecting the right data or because we don't have the right methodologies or because it's technically impossible to collect the data quickly enough and present it back to take decisions? What's, What's really going on in benchmarking FX performance? Who wants to, Claude, perhaps you have some- Yeah, well,
0: it, I think we we'll go back to the earlier question about you know what we could add up from other markets and what's going to make a fix more efficient. Well, all the other arrangements are far more transparent in terms of data points, timestamps, the way data is collected and can be shared across participants. And that's a key element here. Yes, there's still a lot of educations to be done and not everybody sees it the right way around and not everybody thinks about it as, you know, you say, it's easy to say, well, a lot of small compared to equity, so I won't about it. But actually, it, it is a, still a big number. But, but you're right. Uh, we did a study back in 2019, and the hardest thing from, for clients who participated in our study was actually to, uh, to clean the data. You know, they struggle around providing the right timestamps for their, for their own execution. So I think uh, because we're dealing with legacy systems, and, and it's quite hard to track all of these things, from the time the ticket actually leaves your OMS, goes to your EMS, goes to the bank, then gets traded, then gets booked, then goes back to you, which timestamps you're looking at, right? So it, it, it's extremely hard. So data here is at the core of the problem, the access to that data, quality data, and, and there's no, um, there's no considerate tape for foreign exchange. You know, it's not like there's a centralized source that everybody can tap into and say, oh, these were my timestamps. So yes, the more work is needed there. And that's one of the things that we should adapt from, you know, and accept from other new emerging technologies is this ability to be far better managing data around the trading and the post-operation process. Mm
4: -hmm. Yeah, if I can just add something there too, I think one of the things that I've always struggled with in in foreign exchange is that there's always been this hyper-focus on point in time, transactions cost to analytics, when in other asset classes, there's this idea of implementation shortfall where it starts with the origin of the trade. And then there's all of these workflows that you know, need to take place before a trade is even available for execution. Then there's the decision-making to execute it. So, and there's all of these different elements of performance that I think are ignored in FX largely because it's really, a, it's a point in time uh, measurement in many cases. And I think there are you know, emerging technologies, there's TCA providers who are trying to go further upstream into that that measurement, but I st- I still think FX is quite a bit behind other asset classes. Jay, I mean I'm i going to take a little bit
2: of an issue with ignored, um, not not <laughs> that I disagree with you that it, it that it's not taken into account. I think it's it's more it's I think people are aware it's just difficult. It's yeah, because yeah, yeah. We're, we're dealing with legacy technology stacks that make it difficult to to pull the data and a dispersed market structure that make it makes it hard to to have this d- definitive view i mean Claude, i i would be nervous of the idea of it in any way trying it's suggesting that a more sort of regulated less dispersed market structure would give a better outcome to clients because personally i don't think it, i don't think it would and i, and I don't think an, an exchange traded fx market actually gives gives better outcomes for clients against the innovation that's a new new technology practices and offerings like yourself yourselves oh yeah you're right on. it's
0: about technology as opposed yeah. to you know overly regulating the whole thing um so absolutely. regulation doesn't mean you're going to go faster more you know more cheaply or being more efficient yeah. but if you have better technology you hope that you should
1: well, i'm going to i'm going to pick up the legacy point you made in a minute alan but it's like jamie walton has actually given us has joined the discussion and given us some observations which i think are worth uh, well, I was
3: just going to say, Dominic. Sorry to interrupt, but um, I felt that um, one of the issues is that you were talking about plethora of benchmarks, but I don't think that's right. There is one benchmark at the moment, and that's WMR, and it's the only reference that is being used in uh, in index tracking or, or whatever. Um, and therefore, if it's the only benchmark, it's the only one that and the one that everybody is trying to um, play with. And uh, we all know that uh, um, just, just look at what's happening every day at four pm. Every you know we've we had the high frequency traders stepping in and uh, and pushing the trend, um, distort, distorting the rate basically. So um, an alternative benchmark definitely uh, would be welcome uh, because. It, but it needs a, an evolution in the, in the mindset of, uh, of people like MSCI or, or, or JPM index or whatever, because they would need to offer the alternative of benchmarking the execution against an alternative benchmark. But today, there is only one benchmark, which is used, widely used, It's a monopoly. So this needs to to change in my view. And I I think to to, to answer Jamie's question, yes, there is room for alternatives. There there used to be the ECB benchmark, the ECB fixing, which uh, was removed, I think, uh, six or seven years ago, or or not removed, but it's still there, but it's uh, published much later after it's been calculated, so it cannot be used as a benchmark. Only WM today exists, and uh, there, there is definitely room and a need for alternatives.
1: The, the, the buy side is, is at fault here for not choosing more apposite uh, benchmarks.
2: Yeah, so look, I think we just need to separate what we mean by benchmarks here because I, I agree with Mathieu in, in a sort of subset of what I would think of the benchmark definition as a, as a reference price within other products be it indices be it derivatives products absolutely um it it is wmr i think there are however other benchmarks and i'm sure claude will talk a little bit about new change and what what, uh, and what he's doing there and a variety of other benchmarks that tca providers will use as reference prices um when looking at transaction cost analysis but there's almost two sort of for me, two divergent conversations here, one around benchmarks for, for reference pricing. Mattia, I completely agree with everything you've just said there. And then a second conversation around transaction cost analysis, looking to provide transparency in the market and, and some of the work that Claude, Claude and his team are doing. Yeah, no,
0: yeah, you're absolutely right. I think we should not confuse the two. And um, but, but going back, you know, we say we should separate benchmark. We should also separate buy side. A real push here uh needs to come from the asset owners i think you alluded to that earlier dominic it, it's them at the end of the day that uh that need to push for that um and and if you're an index tracker then for of course you're going to track the index but if you're using this to perform your shy class aging then it actually impacts your performances mm-hmm. and that is real money real pensioners money that disappears yeah. so that requires a different type of response yeah. and, and then of course there's a different uh, category to that benchmark which is the measurement you know, if you're measuring market impact, you need to have a proper instrument to do so, uh, which is uh, what, what we're trying to do with, with the new change rate. But again, that's for a different purpose. It's for measurement. It's for creating a, a neutral uh, point of reference. Uh, if you're looking to execute onto something, yes, there's a need for an alternative. Uh, and but there's a, a, a real question for the, the buy side, but the asset owners as to why they're not pushing for it in the first place.
4: I think it's interesting just listening to what a couple of comments you guys said. The the distinction I'm starting to think about in my head is the difference between a reference rate and a benchmark, right? A reference rate to me is kind of, all right, that's implicit in your mandate. It's an index, you know, it's defined by the index. That is your reference. uh, That's what you're going to be measured against. Benchmark can be any number of things, right? It's it's how you benchmark your performance, uh, given the nature of the trade you were doing. Uh, it, you know, given the site where you are in the cycle of that trade, um, there could be many benchmarks along that timeline of, you know, the three hours it took you to generate the order and execute the order. There many there may be six benchmarks along the way. So I think that that's a distinction that we should start thinking about, um, because that's where I think in benchmarking, there's a lot of room uh, for for new entrants. And, and the WM is probably not the right, um, you know, rate to use for pure benchmarking and performance.
0: No, no, you, you're, you're absolutely right, Jay. That's why, you know, the rate we're using is actually live and continuous. And if you're right. able to perform any sort of measurement over an execution period, you need to have that. The one point in time in the future serves absolutely no purpose for that, for that case. You're absolutely right.
4: Yeah, yeah. Okay.
1: I think we have and that. I would say that
3: yeah, FXTCA F- F- also is, oh, sorry, go ahead, Dominique. Well, I was
1: just, <laughs> so we, have, we have about 10 minutes left um, and I'd like to turn to, to ops and technology, but before I do, uh, two things. One is, is Jamie Walton has, has said to us, I think TGA yeah, <laughs> transaction cost analysis does need to step up to capture these effects, and I, I assume he was talking there about uh, market impact and other things. And he also adds there is no agreed way yet to measure market impact. So I think that that ties up our our, our benchmarks conversation quite neatly. Unless this match, you, you you wanted to add just one thing very quickly to that.
3: Yeah, I, I was just going to add something which is. Um FXTCA in the case of institutional investors, is quite difficult one. And that's been alluded to just before, because the FX is a consequence of their initial investment, generally. So, you know, the, the FX exposure is created once a European asset manager has bought American stocks. So the, the, the FX exposure is here, but between the time he it does his transaction on the US market the time this transaction is processed by the um, the, the the system and generates the underlying effects or, or the consequential effects, there is a there can be an hour, there can be a day, um, so it, it's extremely difficult to associate FX TCA f- for the um, investment space, um, and there would be a need or or. A, um, there is room for improvement there as well. Defining when is the right moment to uh, to do your timestamp, and that's been discussed before. Because uh, will it start when the FX starts being done? When it's completed, it's it's sort of quite a difficult one um, can, to can, to measure.
1: I can see it's very very difficult to as a, as a as a buy um, user of the market. You want to understand what it's costing me to do this thing, and actually arriving at that cost is very very difficult. Um, for a whole variety of, of factors, but there is one cost which, um, which, which we could do something about right now, and that's that's the post trade costs. We've got this extremely fragmented uh, post trade infrastructure at the moment. You know, matching and confirmation, credit netting, innovation, uh, the allocation, reporting, the, the, the cash settlement, all done by by sometimes more than one organisation. And, and Alan mentioned the issue of legacy systems. Um, lack of budgets to to repair them and so on, um, but I, I feel we the one area which fintech in particular new technology can make a real difference, um, and the recent uh, alliance we saw between um, between Cobalt and, and Baton suggests something can be done here. Um, why isn't it actually happening? After all, these banks, uh, even very large banks, are racking up costs they don't need to incur post trade. Yeah, they seem to find it very, very difficult to do anything uh, to reduce those costs. What, what explains that? What's the, what's the holdup here? The technology exists. The answers are fairly obvious. The solutions are out there provided by more than one fintech. Why isn't anything changing?
2: Because it's much, much easier to build a plane on the ground than it is to rebuild a plane whilst it's in the air. And I know that uh, it's a cheap cliche, but I really think it rings true in this case. Yeah, That's I also think. true.
4: But I think that the other thing to consider, too, is that what, what incentive does the buy side have to change when they've got systems that work that they don't pay for? And that the sell side is obviously, you know, and I'm not suggesting that they should pay for it. I just sorry, but they do you know, pay,
1: but ultimately, don't they? Because well, it,
4: they do, but it's again, it's one of the implicit sort of unmeasured costs that you know are. I don't want to use the word ignore it again, uh, out of fear of Alan. <laughs> 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 but, but you know, I think it's it's one of those you know out of sight, out of mind. Um, it's 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 free. So and there's a cost of technology, to, to rebuild systems that are working.
0: Well, that, that could be set of effects as a whole, you know, if, if whatever you pay for effects is in the price, it doesn't show up as an invoice at the end of the month, you could say, oh, trade effects are free. Well, guess what? You know? That's, I think, otherwise, I think otherwise in large the part. banks would be out of business and none of us would be right. talking about it. But, but that's I, probably I think, a I think reason Island why is they right. slow. You know, to, the, 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 amount of, the amount of risk that these people are not interested to take in order to change the system quickly is so high. That's why it's so slow. And, and you mentioned the right names, Dom, uh, Cobalt, and I think these guys are great. But you know, you look at uh, what the market is looking to achieve and the amount of risk that's behind this, nobody's incentivized to take that risk today. So what's gonna take us to that point is gonna to have to be properly measured and identified and, and demonstrated to people before they can say, actually, now I do know I have that cost and I need to do something about it. And there's a real incentive for me to, to attack that risk. That risk, that, that push needs to come from, on the one end, what we discussed earlier, it needs to come from the asset owners. It needs to come from, from the regulators. It needs to come from all these people we always talk about best execution and never gave a definition of it. But the reality is when you look at best execution, you should just not look at the spread you pay or not even just your market impact. You should actually look how much it's gonna cost you to process the ticket from start to finish. We, we've done some work recently, which showed that the cost of, you know, bouncing the tickets between the messaging system and, and whether it's the whichever system, back office system you can think of, and, and then uh, sending the messaging, reconciling the trade, pinging for the SSI, so on and so forth actually make the cost of that ticket a multiple of whatever spread you can save on the execution. That's not taken into consideration today because it's not the same cost center, but that needs to be part of the overall process. People need to look at this far more carefully, identify things better, more measurement, better analysis, and actually take a real decision. Is this worth me going for trying to optimize just risk transfer while at the back end, I'm actually paying multiple times what the savings are going to be on a risk transfer. It needs to be a far more holistic project and there needs to be clear incentive for people to do that. So the push needs to come from both ends of that story. The asset owners, those with those assets, the people in between, because that's also impacting their costs and their performances as well as an asset manager, as well as, as you know, of course the banks are probably a little bit quicker at that because it's impacted their balance sheet directly and they've been under scrutiny for that. But the regulator needs to make sure that this is understood and, and, and apply it across the industry, not just to banks.
4: I'd add too. I mean, I think, you know, Claude, you mentioned the you know, risk, right? That is a key thing here, right? And so we're balancing risk, which, you know, people don't want to make change and, and introduce risks if something's working okay, even if it's a little bit more expensive. So I think it's about incremental change. Yes. And I think the word disruption is always used when it comes to fintech. And, you know, we talk about this all the time that, you know, we're trying not to be disruptive. Right. The key is to be, um, you know, sort of invisible, like, you know, it needs to be automated, it needs to be part of a familiar workflow so that it can create efficiencies without substituting, you know, in risk uh, and, and other costs. So, you know, it's always about non-disruptive technology, incremental change that ultimately I think is going to get there. If we try and eat the elephant, I think we're just going to, you know, it's You're just not right. going it's, to go anywhere.
0: It's about fitting in with an existing workflow to improve and optimize it as opposed to trying to break it. Exactly. exactly. Nobody's got no, and I think you just, you,
3: you just need to look at, at the amount of FX, which is still processed by the custodians. And I don't want to go back to what happened 12 or, or, or 13 years ago, uh, but the, the, the comfort that uh, the custodian process can bring to those um, um, asset managers, asset owners, because FX is definitely not their core business. Uh, the, the the savings they get the thing they make on operational risk on credit risk as well because they will be um, benefit from a, um, interest in credit arrangements from their custodian the um, liability cover as well if there is an, a problem all of those factors are um, comforting. For asset managers and asset owners to maintain uh, the FX with their custodian, eventually, even if it comes with a premium. So it's not about all about cost; it's also about risk, as as Jay and Kurt was just saying. Yep. Okay.
1: I, I, I'm, we're, we're into our last um, couple of minutes, so we, we must we must stop, I'm afraid, in a minute. Although I can see we can go on for a very long time, indeed. And I'm getting a bit depressed actually, because I, I began this this discussion thinking that actually I totally underestimated the volume of change which is going on in the FX industry. I'm now hearing from you that in fact, plenty of, of very large banks involved in the FX industry fully understand that their, their, their post-trade costs are excessive but they're not prepared to do anything about it because the risk of doing something about it far outweighs the cost. <laughs> and that's
2: what I wanted to come back <laughs> in on, Dominic, and because actually the impression I get is that the the big institutions and it's not just banks, sell side institutions, it's asset managers, it's execution platforms, and so on, are very very aware of this. In the sense that they they very much understand that there are these constant sort of news articles, pieces in terms of cost of technology going down, cloud-based, services-based, and so on, but they don't see their own technology builds going down. So I think think two things, I think there's an understanding that it is more difficult because it is harder to rebuild the plane whilst whilst it's flying along, but also over the next period of time, and we could be talking as long as a decade or two, but over the next period of time, it has to change. And uh, and I think we're all having conversations in different ways with market participants of all shapes and sizes in different parts of the market where this is going to change. The the, the legacy cannot persist because because if it does, then then particular service providers of all um, sort of shapes and sizes in the market are over a period of time going to price themselves out of, of continuing to do the business that they do. So Dominic, personally, I'm an optimist, um, but I just think it's going to take a period of time to get there because of the of the risk points that Mattia just uh, just mentioned.
1: Okay. Now it, it's now three o'clock, but we're, we're running over time. We started a little bit late, so we might, let's just carry on. I'd like to ask each of you one one last question then, in, in response to what you've been saying. Alan, Claude brought up the question of, of of the regulator, the regulatory role. You know, we've had this FX global code. Which has been in place for some years now. The buy side won't sign up to it, if I remember. It had like fifty five or fifty seven different ways in the back of it, which, in which banks can rip off buy side clients. And and here we are, still talking about how comforting the the buy side finds the working with the banks and and how the banks are not prepared to 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 make revolution in their in their back office costs and thereby cut the charges they pay to the buy side. So, if you could be, if you were the regulator. And you were looking to um, make this market less asymmetric for the for the buy side in particular. Let's say if you could be the god of the FX market for a day, what would you actually do? What's the one measure that you would that you would take? Um, Mathieu, what would what, what would be the one thing you would like to see the regulator actually do? Uh,
3: well, I, I will thank you for asking me first on that because <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, i'm not good because I, I will die one day um no fr- frankly i i think the the, the fx code um is a good thing i would really hope if i if i were the uh, fx God that the uh, buy side would sign up to it because they're they are instrumental i mean i think jay you said that they were bringing the liquidity to the market you're right um international investments have exploded over the years So they are the ones driving the markets. Generally, Uh, they are the ones bringing the big flows at the four pm. They are the ones bringing the big flows at the month end. They should really be aware of their of their impact on the market, and they should be wider adherence to the FX code. Um, That's if I was uh, the FX code, I would ask them to sign up to it more. I think there's been good progress. I think amongst the top twenty. um, 10 or 11 firms have signed uh, to the code, but it, it needs to be more widespread. I think it's good enough uh, as it is for such a large market. Um, adding more regulations would probably make it less efficient.
1: Right. Claude, What if you were god of the FX market for a day, what would you um, ordain?
0: Well, that, that's a tough one, but I think, you know, um, I think Alan said that earlier, each each problem brings an opportunity, or, or each challenge brings its own opportunity. I think we did identify a very key challenge here, which is the ability to measure and, and, and produce good data. I'd probably look to impose to an extent some sort of quantities of items that need to be measured. And I do understand that people find that hard and it would probably be painful to implement, but there's plenty provided out there that could help people to, to come up with that data. And that data, in turn, would actually highlight certain things that they have to do. There will be no no more excuses if you want to to not do certain things, because then you're you're confronted with the real hard evidence that's in front of you. So so probably try and impose more measurement uh, as a minimum rule.
1: I like that idea. More more and better data, greater transparency, if you like. Uh, Jay, what's your what's your god of the FX market? Uh
4: yeah i I think you know both the answers before me were actually quite good and, and I think are probably the two things that are probably most important. Um, but I think the top thing would be getting buy side more engaged uh, and more involved because at the end of the day, it's really you know they the, the buy side is who is responsible for the performance of our assets as the ultimate asset owners, right? This is my retirement account, your retirement account. They are the ones. Um, that are, are are looking after it, so we want to make sure that they're not just passing on the sort of the risk to the banks um, as, as you know uh, to, to to deal with it, and so they should be aware. And I think that comes from data, uh, but but I think being involved and in, in having more um, you know active engagement with the code.
1: Mm-hmm. Thanks, Jay. Get, get so so get the buy side more involved. Alan, last—you have the very last word of the entire webinar, which is an unfair position to put you in, but uh, please have a go. What, what if you were if you were god of the FX market? What would you actually do?
2: So I think there, there are a couple of things. I think first of all re- reflect that that FX is is the foundation of the global economy. Picking up on what Jay was just saying, and and Dominic, I, I slightly disagree with you with with where the premise is because I don't think the premise is that bad. A lot of progress has been made. We talk about conduct in the FX global code. And, and a fraction of 1%, a small fraction of 1% in terms of translating from one currency to another, and that being so dispersed to wherever it's needed in, in the global economy, is, is not that bad. But I still agree with what everyone is saying. It can be done, done better. And I just pick up on what the other three panellists and say. It's about disclosure and transparency. If I was God of the FX market for a day, I'd be pressing on each participant in the market, to, you've got to explain more about where your costs are coming from, how you operate to your stakeholders, be that sell side to buy side, be that asset managers to asset owners. We've got to increase understanding and buy-in and that comes from data, links to the global code and, 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 and sort of picks up in terms of buy side engagement as well in terms of what Jay was saying.
1: Thank you, Alan. I'm afraid we must stop there. We've, we're out of time now, but it's been a fascinating discussion. I'd like to thank our panellists, uh, Claude Goulet from Siege, Guild from Hilltop, uh, Mathia Elbeau and uh, Jay Moore from FX Hedgepool. And thank you also to to you, our audience, for listening, and to and to Jamie Walton in particular for that very interesting and seminal question which he which he put. But for now, it's goodbye from the five of us.